Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. When I was working with clients, with companies, with teams, I kept hearing the same questions. Questions like, why is there so much misunderstanding at work? Uh, Why is there uh, so much disconnection between those of different ages and working styles? And what I really realized was a big root cause was that there was no rule book for how we really communicate body language in a digital, hybrid, global world. Uh, We all know that roughly 75% of traditional communication is nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tones. But in a world, and this was well pre-pandemic that I started writing this book, um, where up to 70% of teamwork was already virtual, Uh, you know, emails, conference calls, now the modern Zoom call, you name it. How do we really communicate those signals and cues across the stream? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Erica, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's so great to be here. Yeah. So we have you actually back here for a second time. And usually when we have anybody back for a second time, it is uh, because they were amazing the first time. So no pressure at all. Uh, But uh, I want to start by asking you what social group you are part of in high school and how that ended up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career. There were three status levels in my high school. The first were the super nerds. The second were the in-between middles And the third was the popular click. I would like to say that I was in the in-between middles or I spent a lot of time trying to be in the middle, but in many cases, I felt more at home with the super nerds. Yeah. So, I mean, how did that end up impacting um, your life and, and the work that you ended up doing? 
I spent a lot of my childhood as a, a shy, introverted kid. Um, you know, I grew up in an Indian immigrant family where we spoke Hindi at home, which meant at school, I started with accented English and really struggled to find my voice. Didn't really know how to speak up and act and think in an American way. I, I remember, you know, reviewing and studying the the different hierarchy levels in my school. The popular girls at, in the clique had their heads high, their shoulders back. The middle kids often slouched a little. They wanted to be like the popular kids. Uh, and then the nerds were just fine being the nerds and were oftentimes, uh, you know, in the computer lab and, uh, you know, sitting in the back of the room during school assemblies. And in many ways, I think because I was such a shy person, I developed a knack for observing people's body language and really understanding what people meant by not just what they said, but how they said it. And I still remember as a kid at home, I would watch Bollywood movies and not not knowing Hindi as well as my parents. I wouldn't know exactly what actors and actresses were saying, but I would watch their body language to really understand what they meant. And it really, fast forward 30 years, it led me to become a communication body language collaboration expert. I think my passion for understanding these cues and signals allowed me to really find my voice. And in many ways, I was the immigrant, uh, you know, to the American Indian upbringing as a kid. But, uh, you know, I, I truly believe that the journey of discovering ways to find our voice, uh, you know, in formats that are authentic to each and every one of us is really my mission and my passion. Yeah. Well, so I have to ask about uh, this whole idea of being shy as a kid, because I, I think one of the lines that just made me laugh out loud in the book was you said, my Indian family is full of loud talkers. It's just how we were raised, how we learn dialect in our culture. In my family, either you talk loudly or you don't get heard. And the reason I laughed is because anytime my roommate hears me talking to my parents on the phone, he said, why are your parents always yelling at you? I said, dude, they're not yelling. That's just how they speak. And I thought, good, good to know we're not the only ones alone. So I'm wondering, were you just shy at school or were you shy at home? too. At home, I was, I was loud. I was, you know, very comfortable in my family. I grew up in a Punjabi Indian family and Punjabis are, (laughs) and I will say that not all Indian families are loud talkers. (laughs) You know, I would say I'm married into a family that is not loud talkers. So, you know, so when we show up with the in-laws, it's, you know, there's some culture clash there, but Um, You know, I was very comfortable at home speaking up. I think it was very natural um, for us to get heard by talking over one another. So I guess I'll say mansplaining is just was just table stakes, how you got heard at the dinner table in, in my family culture. At the same time, though, what I think is unique is that listening was an important skill. Also, silence in front of elders was critical, especially in terms of grandparents uh, and I had a very strict childhood. Uh, and I think that led me in was I tried to navigate being part of, you know, a very American school in a conservative neighborhood outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the Midwest. I, I really struggled to know how to speak up in class, how to share and debate, uh, you know, in every report card from kindergarten through 12th grade, I often got straight A's, clearly that that nerdy kid, but um, but every teacher had the same feedback. I wish Erica spoke up in class. And so right. I think that I had this ability to share my voice where I felt safe, but learning how to have the courage to share my voice, even in spaces that didn't feel as, as safe, has been a, a lifelong journey. 
Yeah. So that's to me, I think that that's why I asked the question, because I think it's such an odd paradox where you're at home where you have to speak up, you have to be loud in order to be heard. And yet you get to school and you don't feel safe uh, to speak up. Like, why do you think that is? And then how do people overcome that that barrier? I think in many ways, if I think about, um, you know, my my upbringing, uh, so much of the cues and signals um, that I saw in others, in my surroundings and reading in the room um, really made me feel like I was in a safe space to truly be myself versus in a space where maybe I felt much more comfortable shying away and being more of an observer than a participant. And I, I do think that this element of being really the only brown kid in my private school did create this sense of I am different, being the kid who uh, you know, was asked questions like, why does your family eat so late at dinner at night um, when, you know, we just tended to eat at 9 p.m. Maybe it was a cultural thing, maybe not. Um, and not really understanding just the lens of these diversity questions. I'll never forget, um, speaking of the loud talking point, um, I was at a restaurant in middle school and I invited, you know, a friend to join me and my family at a local restaurant and she told me, her name was Megan, and she told me after the dinner, she said, your parents are so rude to the waiters. And I, <laughs> and I actually wrote about that in my new book, um, Digital Body Language, because when I really dug into it and I studied communications as now an expert on it in the field, uh, what I realized is that my parents speak Indian English, which means when they end their questions, they often end them where they feel more like a statement than a question. So for example, when my mother in her, you know, Hindi, Indian accent says, you know, can you bring us more bread? She doesn't say it in a tone. The tone feels more like, can you bring us more bread? Then can you bring us more bread? And it's actually some of those intonations that made certain people to feel like my parents are rude and others not. And and I think that at the end of the day, um, we are we are um, the products of our upbringings, and we are most comfortable uh, in in a lot of those upbringings. And I think that this notion of how you can find your voice in a different place is something I struggled with, and that made me so shy as a kid, but has become a ne never ending really passion and and creative mission now as a professional. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of parents, as a fellow Indian immigrant, I have to ask you, I know that uh, you know, from reading the book that both your parents were doctors. So did you get the traditional, you know, Indian kid, this is how you become successful motivational speech that you could be any kind of doctor, lawyer, engineer you wanted to be? You know, sure of us, I didn't even get the lawyer engineer option. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed that those are even options for other Indian kids. Um, you know, it was basically become a doctor or a housewife. Um, and, you know, I think back to a lot of that and, and you and I are co-conspirators in the, you know, um, South Asians for creative careers. <laughs> um, but I, I think that in many ways, a, a lot of the strictness of my childhood did fuel me um, as an adult to to think about how important creative expression is. I would say that a lot of my childhood, and I and I give credit to my parents for providing me such a great education, was very built on Indian values of follow this road to success. Uh, and, and if you don't follow it, just get married, <laughs> marry someone who follows it. And I think um, 
you know, there was a lot of suppression in that of my creativity. Um, one of the things I loved to do as a kid was Bollywood dance. And I actually think that was one of the things that gave me a sense of creativity and expression in a way that I didn't really find my voice or my power in any other way as a kid. Um, but I think that is one of the reasons I, I, I am such a proponent of the importance of creative expression and how we, how we change mindsets on giving individual space to not just have to follow a, a rote path, but to test and learn. And even just the power of, you know, free play, like my daughter is learning free play in her school. And I'm like, I don't think I ever learned that. I learned to memorize. And, and I think that in many ways, the last year has taught us that we all have to continually unlearn to relearn. Uh, and, and so in many ways, the, the challenges of it have fueled my passion for it as an adult. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. So let's talk specifically about the challenges, like navigating this dynamic of telling your parents that you're going to become neither a housewife nor a doctor. What is that conversation like? Because for me, I, I think that this is one of those things that I realized at this point they've accepted that that's never going to happen. I'm not going to med school anytime soon. Fortunately, my sister satisfied our family quota and did it. Um, but Navigating that dynamic, I, I think, for so many Indian kids is so challenging because, you know, there's just so many expectations from this culture that you grew up in. So what is it like when, when you your parents realize you're not going to be a doctor, particularly because that's the only option they put on the table for you? I'll never forget, uh, you know, being a senior in high school and getting um, an early decision acceptance to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, great Ivy League school. And my father came home, I told him, and he said in his firm Indian accent, 
you will do a biology major. (laughs) That was his answer. I couldn't go to a business school undergrad. I needed to do biology. And I I think that in many ways, um, I took more of an avoidance method. Uh, You know, I did have this feeling of never being enough. And it probably fueled my fire to just be better, you know, to be 10 times better, 30 times better, 50 times better. At the same time, it wasn't healthy because, um, because, you know, avoiding it as well as just trying to be best in my field can also create work addiction (laughs) and, uh, you know, you know, an achievement focus that often, creates an unhealthy cycle, which I definitely have experienced as well. And then feeling depressed when I didn't achieve certain things when I was doing quite okay. I, you know, I had one best-selling book already out and, um, you know, and everything didn't have to be perfect. I, I think that where I really was able to get through those challenges to truly accept myself is, is only when I hit true breakdown. I remember, um, you know, fast forward after graduating from Wharton, um, you know, I went to Wall Street because I was following the path of success in business. And I worked at Lehman Brothers and I worked at Lehman Brothers through the crisis. And I'll never forget being on the trading floor when this business went bankrupt. And it wasn't just about a business going bankrupt. It rippled the world and caused, frankly, the global recession back in 2008. And I'll never forget that it really caused me to ask myself, you know, such a toxic culture. What do I really want out of life? And I remember like crying one day and just totally breaking down. I remember passing out on the training floor one day. I had to get to the office at 6.30 in the morning and I passed out on in my chair. And like, I really had to have that health crisis moment to break through. And, and my hope is that less people have to do what I did <laughs> to really start asking these deeper questions. Uh, but I've also learned now or 10 years after that, that I have to continually ask myself those questions to give myself space to not continually buy into other people's definitions of success, as well as get into a marathon wheel of achievement addiction that isn't actually the highest and best use of me as a human being. Yeah. So <clears throat> I want to come back to, to the crisis and the breakdown, but I want to ask you something um, particularly about being raised by Indian parents, because I started writing out the, this you know article about the benefits of being raised by Indian parents. And, you know, the conclusion I came to from it was so many of the things that I thought were a pain in the ass about how my parents raised me have been like incredibly beneficial in adult life. The the one that I always go back to is the, uh, you know, getting paid for your grades. I don't know if you saw those kids who you know, or knew any of those kids who basically got $5 <laughs> for every day. You have that conversation with an Indian parent. It's basically, you get a roof over your head and a meal on the table. This negotiation is over. And I realized the benefit of that was intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was invaluable later in life, even though it was annoying as hell when I was younger. So I wonder... For you, what were the things that you thought were a pain in the ass about your parents growing up that actually ended up being invaluable to you later in life? I'll give you a couple of examples and and true stories. Fifth grade, I'll never forget. I got my first B on a science test. Um, My dad went a little haywire and I remember crying and lots of arguments, uh, you know, digging into every single question that I had a mistake on um, and really being uh, very affected by that. And I think while it was very traumatizing as an 11 year old, um, 
to feel that sense of failure as a kid. I think what what my father was really trying to do, don't worry, he wasn't, there was no spanking. It was just, you know, maybe some yelling. Um, we are light talkers. So maybe that was just normal in our family. But it really fueled me to un- understand that I am, I am born for excellence. Like there is excellence in me and I can achieve excellence if I put my head to it. And after that, I, I did not get Bs on science tests. And I think, you know, there is a lot about, uh, you know, this trophy child syndrome and such. And, you know, I'm, I'm on the edge. I'm under 40 years old. So I am technically a millennial, but a lot of what the research talks about around millennials being an entitled generation, like totally doesn't resonate with me as the immigrant kid at all. Like I was, I was working my butt off when I was 13 years old, um, and, you know, got all my jobs through my own hustle, not through traditional networks. Um, and so I, I think that one one is really fueling the fire of excellence. Um, I'll give you one more. And it's something that I didn't quite put together until later in life. And it was, it's actually my father who taught me, uh, you know, really about the the notion of empathy and connection. And it was after 9-11, um, you know, many South Asians were, you know, more under a watch. Um, there was a high level of racism, um, uh, you know, against anyone with skin tones that sort of matched what was showing up on the TV. And I'll never forget, I was at a, a high school, um, you know, sports practice. My father was waiting for me. He's a, you know, he was a local cardiologist at a nearby hospital. He was waiting for me to pick me up from the practice. And, Someone behind the desk uh, noticed my father and deemed him suspicious looking. He had a big Indian mustache and um, was tall and they called the police on him. And I'll never forget um, walking out of the sports practice, watching my father. Uh, You know, we were community members, lived 10 minutes away. He was being frisked by the police officers. Uh, and I watched him with his palms open, his eye contact direct. He had deep deference to the police officers. Uh, you know, I, we got in the car and and went home and everything was okay. He clearly told them that he was a local cardiologist. Um, and I remember driving home with him and being so angry. I was angry at the police for what I saw as racism. And I was also kind of angry at my father for what I saw as just deference And my father said something to me that day that I'll never forget. He said, Erica, body language saved my life today. Wouldn't it be helpful to think about what others are feeling right now? He had so much deep empathy for the fact that, you know, these twin towers have just gone down and the level of fear that people were feeling. And even later that year, he gave a large sum of his income that year to the 9-11 fund. And I, I think that there's this level of, generosity and empathy, especially growing up in India that, um, that he's taught me and allowed me to bring to my work that, uh, I'm just so grateful for and is truly priceless. I don't think I could learn those types of lessons anywhere else. Yeah. So <clears throat> before we get back to the, the whole crisis idea, um, one other question, do you have siblings? I have an older sister and a younger brother. Okay. So did you get a way with murder compared to your older sister? Oh yeah, man. Uh, you know, I think she still hates me for it. Um, I, I got, you know, I had it a little better than her. She obviously had it the worst, but you know, my younger brother had it the best. Number one, not only was he the third, but 
he was a boy. So he got away with B minuses, let alone my one B in fifth grade. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask, so you, like, did the narrative about careers and success change um, with each sibling? Because I, I feel like by the time, you know, my parents got to my sister, and this is why I always joke is that in any Indian family or in any immigrant family, the first kid is the experiment and the second kid, they fix everything they fucked up on the second, on the first one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like she got to do all sorts of things like study abroad. Like my parents were much more open-minded about things that they weren't familiar with when it came to to her than they were with me. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, my sister, my elder sister, the first in the family became a doctor, um, unlike my brother and I. She followed that very traditional path. She wasn't able to go to a sleepover by a friend. Uh, you know, I, I had more leeway on that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think, and, and even things like study abroad is something that I did that she wasn't able to do. And, and I think that there is this sort of rite of passage and there is this hierarchy in the culture of who goes first. Um, I, I do think that, it is very challenging to go first and whether it's you're going first as the kid, you know, the kid and the immigrant family or any family or going first in any type of creative career, there are challenges and sacrifices um, that you make that impact people that come after you uh, in much deeper ways than you would have ever imagined. Yeah. So I, I'm guessing your brother is treated like a prince as the only boy in a family with two girls. Yes. And the youngest. I mean, yeah. man, he's he's got a good... I mean, I think about a parallel. I, I recently, as a, as a keynote speaker, I recently made a list of the top 20 motivational speakers. It's a group, you know, called Global Gurus. And I'm not sharing it to to brag. What I'm really sharing is I looked at the list and I'm number 12 out of 20. And what I found was that I'm the, um, I'm one of two women of color on that list. I'm the highest ranking woman of color. There's only one other woman before me. And then the rest are 10 white men. And I do think about the fact that there were many people that came before me that were first that got me to that point. And, you know, and what will I do to make sure that, uh, there will be more, uh, more colors, more different faces, uh, on that list moving forward. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, well, <clears throat> so let's go back to the, this whole crisis and breakdown. So this is something I think I've observed as a pattern in almost every single person I've interviewed and every single person who seems to accomplish something that is, you know, a combination of both extraordinary and at the same time rewarding to them. And I've always wondered, why you think it takes a crisis because you're saying you know ideally we want to uh you know be in a situation where it doesn't take that but i I think that so often without a crisis people get comfortable and i I wonder you know why you think that is i think that in many ways comfort um you know is is a is human nature you know the space that you know, we crave, whether it's, you know, the comfort of our homes so that we can, you know, relax and be ourselves, the comfort of, you know, being around people that make us feel valued and that we fit in and that we belong. And I think that that does cause us uh, in certain ways to often be more complacent, um, be more uh, less change oriented, or perhaps I'd even argue sometimes be more mediocre. And, um, you know, I think in all of my experiences in my life, if I think about my peak moments of true excellence, of true highest creativity, uh, you know, it came out of crisis moments. It came out of breakdowns. It came out of moments of lots of resistance or lots of pushback from others that fueled a different creative fire. And in many ways, as I reflect on your beautiful question, Srinivas, I think that you know, it just reminds me about the importance of constantly um, en- enabling, you know, challenging experiences. And I think about you as a surfer and as an adventurer at heart um, that that give us that sense of inspiration that we all need. And while we need safe spaces, we also need um, moments that allow some fire, some creative fire to get things going. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a a perfect segue into talking about this whole idea of digital body language. So what prompted you write this book of all the books you could write? I was the immigrant to American traditional body language, and it allowed me to really find my voice. And as an expert on communication and collaboration, about five years ago, when I was working with clients, with companies, with teams... I kept hearing the same questions, questions like, why is there so much misunderstanding at work? Uh, Why is there uh, so much disconnection between those of different ages and working styles? And what I really realized was a big root cause was that there was no rule book for how we really communicate body language in a digital, hybrid, global world. Uh, We all know that roughly 75% of traditional communication is nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tones. But in a world, and this was well pre-pandemic that I started writing this book, um, 
where up to 70% of teamwork was already virtual. Uh, you know, uh, emails, conference calls, now the modern Zoom call, you name it. How do we really communicate those signals and cues across the stream? So I set off on a four-year journey and it really inspired me to write this book of digital body language. And in many ways, just like I was the immigrant to traditional body language, I've learned that today we're all immigrants to digital body language and we needed a rule book. We needed a translator. And I was really excited to write this book and, and bring a new set of, a new set of uh, communication resources to all of us struggling in this time of change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's get into what you call the the four laws of digital body language because I, I think about you know sort of a digital mediums in which communication definitely gets mangled. And you know, we were talking earlier about sort of my reality TV appearance and how in, in any situation, you know, everything is kind of left open to interpretation. But even more so in a digital setting where you can't read you know numerous cues. Like I've had text messages from friends, and I always think, oh, are they pissed off at me? Or if they don't yeah. respond, I start freaking out. So let's get into the, the you know, sort of what you call the four laws. Let's start with the, um, the first one. The first law of digital body language is to value visibly. Now, if you think about the traditional signals of showing appreciation for other people, it was usually the relieved smile, a handshake, a handwritten thank you note. Most of those cues are now invisible, especially in our digital world that we're living in. Valuing visibly today is about really being attentive and aware of others. It means things like always being sensitive to other people's needs, calendars, and schedules. It means reading the emails in our inbox with true care, understanding that reading messages carefully is the new listening. And when we value visibly, we're willing to sit with that discomfort. We're not going to ruminate about a period at the end of a text. Uh, you know, we recognize other people. We don't rush them. We don't constantly multitask. We don't cancel meetings at the last minute. And we're really, we're really clear that valuing others is not just sending that THX period email, but taking that extra step, that time to communicate what the smile or the thank you thoughtfully was in a face-to-face -face setting in a digital channel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so you said the second law of digital body language, communicate, communicate carefully involves making a continuous effort to minimize the risk for misunderstanding and misinterpretation by being as clear as possible in your words and digital body language. So let's talk about that in two contexts, one which is of personal interest to me, which is online dating, and then the other is obviously <laughs> in any other situation. So let's start with online dating. And I share a story in my book um, about uh, you know, a, a couple that had been dating for a while. Laura and Dave had been dating for about three years. And one night they got into a fight exclusively by text message. And, it was a back <laughs> and forth. Laura was very frustrated. Finally, she had had it at the end of a, you know, constant back and forth, two hour texting fight. And she writes, so are we through? T-H-R-U question mark, question mark. And Dave responds immediately saying, I guess so, dot, dot, dot. For the next 48 hours, Laura grieves the end of her relationship. She tells her friends that they broke up. She takes off a day from work and she looks at old pictures and, and tries to really, uh, you know, move forward. Monday comes around, Monday night, and it's, you know, about to be dinner time. And Dave shows up on her doorstep knocking. Uh, Laura opens the door and says, I thought we were through in our relationship. 
And Dave said, I thought you meant we were through fighting, not as in our relationship. (laughs) And, you know, if this example doesn't help us realize the importance of communicating carefully, I think, you know, there's lots more I could share. But um, in many ways, uh, you know, all of the cues and signals from the direct eye contact, the smile, the pursed lips, the shrugged shoulders, the, the stroking of our chin gave us the cues of what someone really meant in communication. And my argument is that a lot of these cues are invisible. So we have to reinfuse them back in different cues, whether it's uh, emotional nuance and tone, but we have to make sure we are ultra clear. We can't assume that everyone will understand what an emoji exactly means. Uh, even one re- research study showed that if you put a period at the end of a text, some people think that you're signaling that you're frustrated. Others signal think that you're signaling good punctuation and grammar. Uh, and my general rule of thumb to communicate carefully is don't get emotionally hijacked. Stop reading into a lot of these things. If you're seeing a repetitive pattern that's bothering you, then know when to switch the virtual medium and talk about it. I like to say a phone call is worth a thousand texts or emails. Uh, and most most importantly, uh, you know, stay in the place of reason and know really when to continually switch the channel, but give people grace and empathy. Sometimes that all caps message is not shouting. Sometimes it's it's excitement. Or if it's the case of my Indian father, when he sends me text messages, he doesn't know how to uncaps his (laughs) message. So that's just my father being my father. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so I, I have one other random question. So I think there's a sort of fine line, particularly for guys who are, are, you know, talking to people online or an online dating app between, you know, being flirtatious and coming across perverted. And we're always kind of, you know, sort of towing the line of, okay, am I going to go too far here? At least I know I am. So how do you navigate that? I recommend, uh, you know, it, it all goes back to two questions that I talk about in digital body language that guide not only how you read other signals, but how others read your digital body language signals. And and these are two questions that you can use to make sure you know, especially in dating, but even in just commonplace life, whether to throw in that emoji, whether to add that extra question, or whether to err on the side of formality. The first question is, how much do we trust each other? Is, you know, are, are you two individuals that have known each other for a while that maybe have met in person at least once? So those body language cues are there, that that initial connection is there. If so, you know, you may err on the side of being more of authentically you versus starting with, you know, a dose of formality to begin with, uh, just, just to be conscious of not having understood that person's digital body language style first. Uh, this and, the, and then on the other side, you know, knowing that the other question that's key to answer is how much power is between you? Again, in a dating dynamic, uh, you know, it depends also on the dating app that you're using. Maybe there's a power dynamic, uh, you know, in terms of who, who reach out, who reaches out first, or who doesn't. But even in the workplace setting or in a job setting, there's power dynamics, and you may respond more quickly or be more formal with someone that has uh, more power. Than you, and you mean you may send brief one-liners to someone who has less power than you. And I think that understanding and asking yourself what are the trust and power gaps here is an important question, so that we think before we type, uh, and we're a bit conscious of this. At the same time, I mean, sometimes just being yourself, uh, you know, if you if there is trust, is a great thing. It will allow you to get noticed and stand stand out. Uh, again, you don't want to go too far 
or use that eggplant emoji when it's not really <laughs> appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this in the context of email because um, I think the the biggest source of my frustration is email. Like lately, I've been trying to coordinate a uh, you know live interview with uh, a podcast guest, and I won't name this person's name Don, to not because I don't want to throw their publicist under the bus. It's taken 32 emails to schedule oh an God. interview because she won't put all of her questions in one email. And I asked her to do that. And then she asked the same question that I answered in previous emails. So it's like, I, I finally was like, listen, I'm, I, I finally got on her. I was like, it's taking you 32 emails to get this scheduled and it's still not scheduled. So please send me all of your questions. For your client, you want to get everything to them in one message. And I would appreciate it if you did the same for me. Um, you know, and it was beyond frustrating, but I feel like I see two categories of people with some emails. One, I have no idea what the hell somebody is emailing me for, or two, they send me a novel to ask me a question. Yeah. This is why I wrote this book, uh, Short of Us. I think that like it was my a shared frustration with the, you know, both, um, why don't you just get to the point? Uh, stop sending me a pro, stop sending me a book in an email. And then also... Uh, you know, just the wasted time, the too many messages separate uh, is is a really difficult thing. So let me do two things here. Let me give you some best practices for how to, how everyone, all the listeners can send better emails. And then also on the flip side, how do you deal with someone who sends terrible emails to you? How does that sound? Yeah, both sound fantastic. So, so let's start with how to write good emails, how to write emails that people actually want to read. My general rule of thumb here is that you have to understand that emails are visual. People read them like websites. They don't read them as long prose or as the way you speak out loud. And so understanding like simple rules. If you're on the two line, uh, making it clear with others that we expect you to respond. If you're on the CC line, maybe you don't need to respond. You just need to read it. The art of the subject line makes or breaks whether people want to read your message. Make it clear, make it concise. If you have a work request, have a time deadline. I even recommend things like, 4D, which means I need this in four days, or 2H, which means I need this in four hours, or say it's urgent when it's urgent, um, or give clear requests, especially when you're following up. Don't just send something back to the R-E-R-E chain and the subject line. Make it clear what you need. People read their inbox through their subject lines now. Then when you go to the body of the email, understand that it's visual. Use bold lines, underlines, bullet points. Uh, you know, again, People read this in a way where you need to get to the point clearly and quickly. And so the more that you can understand, like it's the art of a, of a visual message and people read visually, not in prose form, the, the more likely that others will read your message and get to the point. And always just having a, I call it, I have a box in the book called Think Before You Type Checklist. And it's a checklist that just goes through some common, some common things that everyone should really be careful of, like asking yourself, is this an appropriate tone? Did I, am I sending this message at the right time? Don't send it Friday afternoon if you know they'll miss it. Um, you know, schedule it for Monday morning. Is this the best channel to use? Do I have everything that the receiver needs to respond to this message? And if we take like those 30 seconds, we will realize how important this is and we'll have much more success. Now, if you're on the other end, you get terrible emails. I recommend a few things here. Uh, the first is, 
to respond very clearly with exactly what you need. And as you said, uh, you know, try to say, could you share it all in one email instead of multiple? Like be blunt and to the point, especially if there's high high trust levels. If if this is someone you've never met before and you're working with their assistant, again, it is hard to do this. Um, but depending on that power dynamic, I, I err on the side of trying to really ask them to get exactly what you need in one message. Otherwise it is very annoying and distracting. If no. you're following up with someone, uh, you know, change the subject line as well. It can often help to make sure that you get exactly what you need and no one to just pick up the phone and stop responding to emails. Yeah, I think the other people that frustrate me with this are book publicists because they just send me the same, you know, cut and paste pitch that a thousand people have gotten. And I'm just like, okay, I don't really know what this person does. And you've sent me a novel length galley letter. And like, we even have a form on our website that says, if you send us a galley letter, we'll delete the pitch. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I know you and my book publicist didn't send you an email. But, but I bet, you know, if that was the case, it, it happens so much more than we think. And I, I think that the key message of this book is slow down and write better emails. And when you do, it's not a trivial thing. It makes or breaks relationships now. Mm. Well, okay, speaking of of communication, um, I didn't want to get out of this without talking about emojis, and then we'll get into the other two laws and and wrap things up. But you say today, even for the most skilled communicators, emojis have become an essential shortcut. Not only do they appear in text and group chat tools, but they also show up in PowerPoint slides, video meeting discussions, and emails. Using emojis, we can express ourselves faster, more vividly, and literally more colorfully. That said, we often create more confusion than than intended uh, when we rely on emojis in lieu of actual words. So let's talk about the use of emojis uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't drive people crazy or make them wonder what the hell you're trying to say. Emojis in many ways are like the new facial expressions. You can be happy, you can show sadness, you can show gratitude, you can show excitement all through different levels of emojis. Even in uh, the Oxford English Dictionary in 2015, their word of the year was a face with tears of joy emoji. And and so I really believe that emojis are here to stay. They are a new universal language, uh, especially in the last year. They've, they've captivated even corporate cultures. And of course, err on the side of formality if, you know, it's a, a you know, a financial services or insurance company, but, um, but they become much more common. I, I think that my general rule of thumb with emojis is to just simply think before you emoji, understand when it can actually help. Uh, and make sure you are not signaling something confusing as well. Um, so try to avoid using emojis for passive aggressiveness. They can be used in that case to try to say, thank you so much emoji when you're really annoyed with someone. Um, try to use it in a way that is um, standard with those you're communicating with. Otherwise, it can create a lot of confusion for them. And I think at the end of the day, also know that there are... Um, there are dynamics and actually judgments across different cultural backgrounds. In fact, one study showed that a younger female that used multiple emojis in the workplace compared to a man at any rank level in that same company, the woman would be more likely to be seen as incompetent. The man would be more likely to be seen as casual and friendly. And I'm a big fan of just being who you are. But um, but similar to the way we have biases like up-talking and voice pitch, there are digital body language biases and it's critical to simply know your audience. Mm. So let's talk about the the third law, which is uh, this whole idea of collaborating confidently. Um, 
talk to me about that and how it's done. Because I mean, everything we're doing today, particularly when we're all remote workers, is all collaboration with people in different places. Collaborating confidently at, at its heart is about always prioritizing thoughtfulness over speed. It's about making sure that we are not just rewarding the fastest person who responds to an email, the quickest person who jumps in on a Zoom call. We're taking the time to thoughtfully engage introverts and extroverts. Even simple things like always sending agendas in advance of an email is not just a trivial good best practice. It helps introverts process ideas, prepare, actually be ready to share their thoughts. You know, if you if you say in a video call, who wants to share, we're usually much more likely to just hear from extroverts and the most senior people. And we're not actually creating psychological safety for those to speak up. It's also about taking that extra moment to stop sending 30 reply all emails and saying who really needs to be involved, uh, you know, to be thoughtful of people's time and efforts. Um, when do we need to loop in people? When don't we need to? I, I, I have um, recommended something I call the Zoom BCC, where if someone doesn't need to be on that video call anymore, just in the chat, write BCC in their name, the way we have email BCCs where we loop people out. It actually is a respect tool and builds confidence. So that's what collaborating confidently is really all about. Cool. And then what about this idea of trust totally? Like, you know, uh, because I think I, I think the thing that's interesting to me about trusting is, is that you're kind of in a lot of ways, you know, ho- hoping people will do things and then, you know, n- expecting them to. I've been really fortunate that I have a team that, you know, is really good that I don't have to hold them accountable to things. Things get done faster than I ever expect them to. Uh, so that's been a blessing in disguise. But let's talk about this idea of trusting totally. Trusting totally, especially in a world where it's hard to build trust in the world of screen freezes and echo delays and the lack of tone and body language and being able to read all those cues is simply about giving others the benefit of the doubt, assuming positive intent, creating those safe spaces for individuals to speak up, knowing that there are differences and we have to navigate them and also being vulnerable ourselves, which gives others the permission to do the same. And whether that's virtual water cooler moments or time for informal social connection or Whatever it may be natural for your team or group, I think uh, the the effort we make to build that trust co- totally culture is not uh, trivial at all. It's groundbreaking for innovation. So one of the things you talk about is, is psychological safety. And uh, this is something that seems to come up over and over again in conversations I've had with people about leadership, about management. Uh, how do you create psychological safety for people? Psychological safety, uh, I'll, I'll talk very granularly about how do you create psychological safety, but especially in an environment um, built around digital communication, which I think is does have its nuances. There's a lot of buzzwords that are out there about, uh, you know, words like build as a culture of belonging and show listening skills. But uh, you know, there. Uh, what I found as I was writing this book was that there was very little out there around true psychological safety practices for the modern day email exchanges, for video calls, for text exchanges, like really tactical strategies. And so what I really did is I focused on how do, and studied how do we build that psychological safety in these actual virtual mediums. And I found things like, uh, you know, even the art of... Um, group discussions. If you're on video calls, psychological safety is when individuals are all actively and thoughtfully participating. Some are participating in the chat. Some are participating in voiceover. Junior employees feel just as willing to speak up and share their opinions 
It's when leaders are specifically calling out and designing their meetings so that everyone can share. Even one of my clients, she sends questions in advance that she wants everyone to be ready to answer in the meeting. And then in the meeting, instead of calling on people, she says, I'd like everyone to share their comments in the chat first. And then she calls on people with the most diverse and different opinions. So there's no turn taking, uh, which causes groupthink and bias anyway, because you often hear from certain leaders first. Uh, And she focuses on the diversity of perspectives in the conversation. Psychological safety is also things um, as simple as if there is any passive aggressiveness or online bullying, especially in email, it's stopped swiftly. We create the space to say, this isn't working. We, we need to get on the phone and have these discussions uh, and set some norms moving forward and really making it explicit versus masking ourselves and just letting things fly because they are causing high levels of anxiety for our team members. So those are just some simple examples. But at the end of the day, I think the more we can talk about what can we do in the modern day email and in the team meetings that actually foster it versus simply talk about it is what will make or break a true sense of trust totally. Wow. Wow. Um, Well, I have two final questions for you to wrap things up. So you've accomplished things that a lot of people only dream of accomplishing, getting to write, you know, multiple books, getting to do keynote speeches. And I wonder throughout this process, has your own personal definition of success changed as a byproduct of what you've accomplished? Absolutely. I mean, it definitely started as, you know, success was, uh, you know, a smile from my Indian mother and father. (laughs) Then it became, you know, um, achieving the best in, in, you know, in my business career at first. And then it, uh, you know, success, uh, you know, really emerged after a series of breakdowns to breakthroughs to much more along the lines of, um, unleashing my full creative expression. Wow. And that's simply it. Like these books, this work, in my mind, you know, I'm an artist and this is, this is my art. And I, I'm so grateful to get to share it today with you and, and all the listeners. Amazing. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Daring to be more of themselves and step into the unknown. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insight and your story and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? My new book, Digital Body Language, is available everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble's Audible, internationally, you name it. Um, And you can learn more on my website at ericadewan.com or on my book website, dblbook.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.